Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Consequence Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to the Spark Parade, where I geek out with artists and entertainers about their cultural spark of inspiration. I'm Adam Ons at Spark Parade on all social media. Thanks ever so much for joining me. Uh, my guest today is the Oscar-nominated screenwriter of the brilliant film The Holdovers, David Hemmingson, who spoke to me about his spark, the cult classic British comedy With Null and I. This conversation was a motherfucking delight. Uh, David's love for this movie was so clear from the get-go, and you know, it's always such a joy for me to talk to guests who are so enthusiastic and knowledgeable about their spark, and he's just such a lovely guy, and I'm very confident that you're going to love this one, so I'm not going to stand in your way any longer. Quick David facts. David Hemmingson is a veteran television writer who in 2023 made one of the most astonishing feature film debuts in recent memory as screenwriter and producer of Focus Features widely acclaimed The Holdovers, directed by Oscar winner Alexander Payne, marking Payne's first project he did not write. The Holdovers is a very personal project for Hemmingson. Inspired by his blue-collar New England upbringing and his experiences as a scholarship student at an elite Connecticut private school. A Hollywood mainstay for nearly three decades, Hemmingson's prolific television work includes an impressive range of writing and producing credits along single and multi-camera sitcoms, one-hour dramas, procedurals, young adult series, animation, and more. David is nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay for The Holdovers at this year's Oscars, and you can cheer him on Sunday, March 10th. Quick Withnell and I facts. Withnell and I is a 1987 British black comedy film written and directed by Bruce Robinson. Loosely based on Robinson's life in London in the late 1960s, the plot follows two unemployed actors, Withnell and I, portrayed by Richard E. Grant and Paul McGann, respectively, who share a flat in Camden Town in 1969. Needing a holiday, they obtain the key to a country cottage in the Lake District belonging to Withnell's eccentric uncle Monty and drive there. The weekend holiday proves less recuperative than they expected. Withnell and I was Richard E. Grant's first film and established his profile. It has tragic and comic elements and is notable for its period music and many quotable lines. It has been described as one of Britain's biggest cult films. And there you have it. Time for the main event. Here comes my chat with David Hemmingson about Withnell and I. 
do you remember seeing with Nell and I for the first time being turned on to it, any of that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I saw it at the Carnegie Hall Cinema, I think the day or the day after it opened. Wow. Uh, like in 87, in October. It was a small, it was a rainy day. I remember that. It was a small, small cinema, a small house, smaller crowd. It was not, it was sort of this stealth movie that kind of came, you know, and people didn't quite know what to make of it. But I was sitting there in the, in the movie theater watching it being a kind of a hardcore unrepentant anglophile who'd spent time like living and working over there and kind of was raised on Monty Python, raised on British comedy, raised on Thomas Hughes and Charles Dickens and Thackeray and being a huge anglophile watching this movie going, this is the most magnificent, specific, blackly hilarious, comedic love story I've ever seen in my life. And uh, it just stayed with me. I mean, to the point where I have like the first edition screenplay here. Wow. Signed by Bruce Robinson. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, man. I'm hardcore with this movie. Yeah. So full disclosure, I, uh, I'm a dual citizen, I'm a British citizen who also is, uh, even though I am British, an Anglophile. Um, and, you know, <laughs> all things British culture. I grew up in the States and started going to the UK when, you know, as a, a teenager. And I remember very clearly, you know, going to like my sister's just flats and um, meeting their friends and, you know, going to, to people's studenty uh uh, accommodations and just seeing the poster that Ralph Steadman poster. And, you know, I was like a big Hunter S. Thompson kid at the time. And so it's just like, oh my God, like, what is this? And the phenomenon that it is in the UK, the like how deeply it is ingrained in the culture of, of people who were, uh, you know, around when it came out, but then like a real student culture uh, in the nineties, like people just being obsessed with it. And I just had never even heard of it being, uh, you know, having grown up here that it was, you know, here, I think much more under the radar and in the UK is like this, you know, revered piece of, of, uh, cultural history. Yeah. I mean, I, I stumbled across it. it. I was in, I was in law school. I was a first year at Columbia law school hmm. and kind of didn't want to be a lawyer, ended up quitting that to do this. <laughs> uh, but we sort of like found it to be just the most resonant. The thing is, it's funny because I'll show occasionally I'll show people like I showed a good friend of mine who's about my age the movie for the first time recently, and he just didn't understand it at all. <laughs> you know, he didn't. I think you have to be either being a real anglophile or steeped in that tradition of comedy and that tradition of kind of pathos. I mean, the great thing about the film, I could just go on about the film for days. You know, I thought that the fundamental truth of the film is that it's anxiety producing. You know. Sometimes in the way that the bear, in the, in the way the bear is anxiety producing, because they're always sort of on a knife's edge, and and there's always someone conspiring to push them off axis. You know, whether it's their own appetites or whether a situation, or you know, it's a bull or a poacher or Uncle Monty or whatever it is, they're constantly being pushed off axis, and they're constantly sort of bemoaning their lot to each other in the most vivid and baroque terms. Hmm. But their pain and their sort of angst around their situation is just so hilarious and so specific and so lived in, you know, it just feels like a moment in time. And I think in Britain, especially, it's, I think it's the number one independent comedy of all time in Britain. It's been voted by, I forget what website, maybe it's the, I have actually a little book on it that, 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 that I think BFI series put out, you know, it's just, it's just magnificent. I mean, it's just hilarious and it's just so British in its, its approach toward life and its view of life and its view of sort of like there's a fatalism to it. There's a, a keen sense of class in there, but there's also sort of this Byronic nobility, you know, and Withnell that he's sort of like designing his life to sort of collapse like a flan in a cupboard. You know, he's just gonna, it's gonna happen. And Marwood is sort of like 
the eye character is called Marwood in the screenplay. It's like, although he's never named in the movie, it's like, is part of it, but he's the one who's destined to sort of escape this orbit. It's like, what knows in this decaying orbit, right? Of his own sort of narcissism and his own self-loathing and his own sort of incapacity to get out of his own way. You don't even know he's a good actor until the end of the movie. Right. But Marwood is sort of like, kind of like a remora fish kind of swimming along with him or kind of attached to his orbit. And as, as his orbit decays, Marwood eventually just kind of gets flung free from, from Withnell, um, which is one of the great breakups, I think, all, one of the great cinematic breakups of all time in the rain in Hyde Park like that. And then, of course, Withnell stands in front of the wolf cages at Hyde Park. I think it's Hyde Park and gives the, you know, the Hamlet soliloquy what a piece of work as a man. And Richard E. Grant just absolutely, I mean, come on, that's, that's a great performance of that soliloquy. Mm. And then David Dundas's music comes up at the end, that kind of like broken calliope. I, the whole thing is just so great. It's just so great. Yeah. I mean, it- you know, there are so many different things, there's so many things to say about each individual element, but I think Richard E. Grant's performance in this, like film debut, yeah. you know, this, this is somebody who out of the box was just this incredible, sensitive performer. And that soliloquy at the end is just like astonishing. Yeah. And also the fact that he's teetotal, he's allergic to alcohol. Yep. He, you know, had the only experience he ever had with alcohol was being forced to drink for this. By Bruce Robinson, yeah. Yeah, and getting really violently sick. But the way that he conveys drunkenness and, um, you know, when they're supposed to be high, it's so right on. It's so real. Oh, yeah. And that's just one facet. He is, I mean, you know, he is a, a brilliant actor across the board, in my opinion. But um, this role, like what a, you know, when people talk about a star making role, um just just astonishing i agree a thousand percent man i mean you know the reason did you know a little anecdote because i'm like i'm a total with no nerd you know um total with no nerd I, I wish there was some sort of name for the group like i have a friend who unfortunately is obsessed with jethro tull and they're called like tall skulls which you know that whole thing is questionable they, the entire tall concept is questionable mm-hmm. but um although they have a couple of good songs but i mean he's so but i'm i'm that that degree of granular obsession is what i share i found out that you're right. He did get drunk. I'm 100% right. He, uh, Robinson made him get drunk mm. to experience it. The key, he said he wanted to have the chemical memory of drunkenness. Mm-hmm. But do you know that scene where he drinks the lighter fluid? Uh-huh. Um, yeah, yeah. Right, the, right, before, right before he throws up on Marwood's shoes? Right. The vinegar, well, apparently, yeah. there was, I don't know if you know this, dude. There was supposed to be water in that bottle, but Robinson put white vinegar in the bottle. Mm-hmm. So when he rips the cap off and downs this can full of ostensibly water, it's it's vinegar. And that's, I, I love the fact that I think it was one take. I can't imagine doing a second take of that mm. because you see Grant kind of go like that, you know, and then kind of shake it off and say, got any more? You know, what's in your toolbox? You've got antifreeze in there. You fool, never mix your drinks. And then he throws up. But just the, yeah, I mean, uh, Grant's incredible in it. And by the way, McGann is great. And let's talk about the fact that it's really hard in what's ostensibly a two-hander, but kind of a three-hander if you loop Monty in. How hard it must be to play the straight man to Richard E. Grant as Withnell. But without without Marwood, there's no Withnell. You know, it doesn't work without without Paul McGann. You know. Yeah, and you know all all these. I mean, I know you've uh, more likely than not know all of the you know behind the scenes stories and whatever. But um, all of that stuff about the the torture that uh, Richard E. Grant experienced in many different ways, and the fact that he just threw himself into it and was just you know like put up with it and was so committed to the role and to making it what it became um is is fantastic i don't know if you've seen this there was a screening at the bfi a couple of years ago 
and they did a talk back um and it was just i don't think paul mcgann was there no he, was, he wasn't there but it was um richard e grant and bruce robinson oh wow and just kind of you know going back through the the history of what happened and um kind of the legacy of it and richard e grant said that there isn't a day in his life when you know even now when he doesn't have people coming up to him and quoting lines at him, shouting things yeah. from cars, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Strawberries, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like every day. Yeah. Which I think is... Uh, I mean, I'm a, uh, that yeah. must be a mixed blessing, right, man? I mean, <laughs> right. it's sort of like, yeah. you know, I remember uh, I talked to David Cross once, and a very different thing, but uh, I was working with him on a show called The Shoot Me with Guesting, and he did a character called Slow Downy. And the character's tagline was chicken pot, chicken pot, chicken pot pie. And he said he was like in in like Malaysia, like on a beach at one point. And, and this is just a, this is a micro dose of what Richard E. Grant must do with people walking up to him and just singing the chicken pot pie song. And if you're Richard E. Grant, and that's just a minor, minor, tiny one, that, you know, one-off thing uh, from the from 30 years ago. If you're Richard E. Grant, I mean, it must be magnificent because, you know, he kind of, I mean, Jack Hawk, the role he plays in, um, can you ever forgive me? The most mm-hmm. McCarthy picture. Oh. Incredible. It's fantastic. And he got nominated for that. And I honestly think, and he was wonderful at it, so I'm not taking anything away from Richard Grant, who I think is a magnificent actor. And I would be privileged to work with him. I think he's a genius. He's done so many great things. But it's interesting because I really feel like part of the Jack Hawk love that he got for Jack Hawk was people going like, yeah, you're great in that. And by the way, you were great in 87. You know, mm. like you're, you're with no legacy looms large, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, just, just, yeah. In- incredible, incredible stuff. And he's, yeah, you know, people's public personas can be very different from how they are in private. Yeah, it's very true. But he seems like such a kind, gracious person, and he doesn't seem annoyed by any of that attention. He doesn't seem, you know, sometimes people who were like in Star Wars or whatever, just like, Jesus fucking Christ, give me a break. That's been 50 years. <laughs> um, Stop but, calling me Princess right, Leia. Whatever right, right. But um, he seems really on board with it. He's very, you know, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis originally got offered that part, and he talks about having worked with him and just being like, I owe you my career. This is, you know, I, I wouldn't have the career that I have if you hadn't turned that role down. So, um, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's, it was such a troubled shoot too. You know, you read about it, like, I guess George Harrison wrote to the rescue at the 11th right. hour. I think Ringo right. Starr showed up. I said, yeah, because like handmade films financed it. So I guess it, within the first couple of days, uh, George's business partner, Dennis O'Brien, I think had gone out and was like nervous about it. I mean, I think the distributors and the, the studio were sort of like showing up and saying, this is dark. This is, where's all the light? Why is it comedy? Why isn't it brighter? What, 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 there, there are no hard jokes in this movie. Where are the hard jokes in this movie? And it was Harrison himself who rode to the rescue and was like, I like this film just the way it is. Like, you know, you've seen enough Harrison did that with my, with, um, life of Brian. Mm-hmm. Like they couldn't get financing. Python could get financing for like Brian, George Harrison, handmade film stepped in and said, you know what? Here's the money. And then John Cleese said, why are you? Why are you giving us this money? Nobody else will give us the money. And his incredibly cool George Harrison way was like, I want to see the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's like, I want to see the picture. So it's like, you know, it's he was sort of an angel in a couple of, of, of classic, a couple of classic bits of British cinema, George Harrison. You know? Yeah. Which is why he's my favorite Beatle. Uh, yes. But, uh, my son's favorite Beatle too. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, outside of all of the uh, amazing history of the film itself, I think the story, one of the reasons I think it has really broad appeal for uh, British people is there is a certain kind of 
scuzziness of British youth of like being in your twenties and living in these shared uh, flats and yeah, 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 yeah. just putting up with all manner of bullshit, just you know, filth and people not having any money and really scrounging to get things together, but still managing to have a, an amazing time. And then later on top of that is the scuzziness of being a struggling actor or an artist of any kind and really having that kind of underpinning everything in your life, the opposing forces of absolute desperation and tremendous, sometimes unearned self-belief yeah, and trying to reconcile those things and having it just infused in every aspect of your life. And even, you know, there's lots of kind of hijinks in this movie. Sure. Yeah. Even in those situations, it's all this, you know, foundation of all of that stuff bubbling up. And I think all of that is, you know, that uh, the way that it supports the story, but also the way that it's conveyed to the audience is so spot on. Yeah, I think that's kind of a brilliant analysis, honestly. I think that, you know, it is so culturally specific. And I think that it also serves two functions in a strange way. Um, I think there's a class thing that works through it that a lot of British people can understand, only British people can understand, or people who are you know, I've lived or, or, or familiar, intimately familiar with British culture. Like the class system in Britain is so it's there and it ostensibly, but it's an this invisible thing that just sort of shapes and informs everything. I mean, just the fact that Wisnell, you know, he says things like, you know, why are you wearing that old suit, says Danny. And Wisnell says, old suit, the suit was cut by Hawks of Savile Row. Just because the best tailoring you've ever seen is above your appendix doesn't mean shit, you know? So he's at once proud of it, you know, but then he's like, I got a soul flapping off my shoe. So he's lamenting it. You know, what is, what is the great thing that Marwood says to him? If I was you, I'd ask your father for some money. And he says, yeah, and if, if you were me, you wouldn't get it, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, so he's not going to get any money. And he's got to sort of like flatter and lie to Monty, Montague Wisnell to get, to get the cash. And that's also very British, you know? I also think in Britain, and this is perhaps more universal, the, the movie works on two levels. Exactly what you just said about there's this period of time in that culture where this is the sort of life that people lead. And the movie hits two classes of people and it's great. It gets you coming and going. If you're in that world now and you're that age now in your 20s, right? You're just about to turn 30, right? Turn 30 in a month, I got a soul flapping off my shoe. They're just about to turn 30, like 20s. You completely see your life and the excesses of your life and the squalid romance of your life in the movie. If you're my age in his 50s, right? You look back and you go, I remember that. Remember how shitty that was? That was kind of great though at the same time. So it gets you coming and going. It gets this, it, it's transgenerational and it's appeal, I think, you know? Time for a quick break, because somebody's got to keep the lights on around here. But we'll be right back. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And the uh, another interesting thing, you know, uh, the 
one of the clearest um, indicators of class is accent in Britain. So you can tell, you know, these are people who talk about being connected to wealth, having, you know, stability somewhere that is being rejected because they want to live this kind of bohemian artist's life. And maybe it's because they've been rejected by their families because of that. But, um, you know, McGann was fired for a little bit for not being able to get rid of his really broad northern pool accent and, you know, had to really work to make it sound plummier and uh, that kind of, you know, RP uh, and and to make it sound, I think, uh, especially in Richard E. Grant's case, the way that actors sound, you know, there's like there's a British term uh, calling people a lovey in the theater, which is exactly Richard E. Grant's character with someone who's like, I guess the easiest way to define it is like a bad actor in real life. Like their real personality yeah. is bad acting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all of that stuff being thrown in, when you have that broader understanding of like how class works and the signifiers of class, um, it all, you know, adds to it. But I, you know, I don't, I, I think it stands on its own without having any of that, uh, you know, the richness thrown in. But that context is great. That context is awesome. You know, yeah. I mean, I think that's a great, and then it does kind of inform it. Like, you know, the more, it's a movie that, you know, absolutely rewards repeat watching. I, I, I'm not lying to you when I say I've probably seen it 40 times. I mean, I love the movie. I sometimes just put it on and like watch and I'll hop out in the background. Sometimes I'll just sit, wrap and just like unpack every single moment, you know? But yes, the idea of this guy sort of, it just even even the little things in class, like, um, so where did you where did you school? You went to the other place. Oh, Eaton, that <laughs> moment, you know, right before the cat jumps and he's like, it will die, it will die. So in order to get, you know, Marwood, McGann's character into, into sort of Monty's good graces, the threshold matter is where did you school? Okay, he went to eat. Okay, so he can, we can actually talk now. But first, I have to chase this cat out of the room, you know, mm. because I'm crazy. But yeah, it just it's it's just shot through, you know, the whole thing, and and it's just so specific. But at the same time, you know, I didn't know some of those specifics at the time, but it just it resonated as true. I think to you know to some of the stuff we we're talking about before, it feels lived in. The movie feels like it's being it's been lived in. It feels real. You know, those characters to me feel like yes, I buy you guys as two kind of like drunken, kind of drug addled incredibly broke actors trying to figure out the next step. It just, you just, they just sweat that, you know, they sweat it. Yeah. And the other, you know, huge, uh, thematic element that you kind of touched on the first thing you said is it's a love story and yeah. it's, uh, you know, depending on the, uh, way that you, uh, which, which philosophy you subscribe to in the near endless, uh, discourse about this film, it's either, uh, completely platonic love. The two of them are actually in love with each other. Withnell is in love um, with uh, Marwood. Mar yeah, Mar I keep Mar wanting yeah. to say Margate because that's a city <laughs> in the yeah, UK. Yeah, that's yeah, not yeah, it. Yeah. Um, or that you know it is just um, you know there's there's none of that uh, involved in it. And I tend to think that it's you know it's kind of a gray area. Uh, they seem to think that it's kind of up to your interpretation, but. Um, yeah. And, and also that, uh, stuff thrown in with like the tragedy of losing a friend, the tragedy of a relationship breaking up, the tragedy of your friend being successful in a way that you want to be successful. Exactly. So a lot of, uh, it's emotionally dense. Yeah. What did, what, what did Morris you say? We hate it when our friend becomes successful mm -hmm. and when they're Northern, that makes it even worse. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's that sort of, <laughs> there's that sort of like that moment when he says, um, uh, he says, did you get the part? No, I got the lead. And you just see all hope 
die and with those eyes. And he's like, congratulations. He says, you know, in the softest terms, congratulations. You know, it's sort of like in that congratulations, it's just such a brilliant performance on, on, on Grant's part because you see the total collapse. He, he realizes that his partner in crime and his partner in misery, uh, misery loves company, right? Mm. Is, is going to go away. And now he's truly alone. You know, I heard the original ending of the movie and I think this was in a, in a, movie called a, a magazine called stop smiling i read it it's probably a 20 year old article that i have somewhere here in my study which is you can tell is a, is a with no worthy mess back here but um is that he goes back you know to the to the flat at the end i don't know if you've heard this pours the balance of that bottle of chateau margot into the shotgun that he brought back you know when he was wrestling with china and pours it down the barrel and blows his head off was the original ending yeah i'm glad it didn't end that way yeah 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 <laughs> um but you know, it gives you a sense, and this is still, I think, one of the greatest comedies of all time. So that line between comedy and tragedy, I think Withnell rides it so beautifully. And romance, I think it's one of the most romantic movies in a strange way, you know? And in that Byronic sense, I mean, it's so funny because when we were making um, The Holdovers, I, I said, we need an Edwardian great coat, great, great coat for, for Paul. I wanted him to wear, like, the Edwardian great coat. I wanted it as an homage to, to, the, to the movie. And I heard back from Wendy Chuck, our costume designer she says i was producer on the movie too she's like i said it's and she sent photographs and he's wearing this duffel coat toggle duffel coat that he wears in the movie instead in, in some of the early costume fittings and i was like what happened what happened to the great coat idea and she goes you tried it on look way too cool because <laughs> <laughs> that coat is this fantastic you know double-breasted prince of wales plaid with like i think a subtle like red weave in it and it kind of dusts the ankles and it just it's too cool right um you know and, and if you look at his his wardrobe too in that movie He's kind of got this sort of poet's shirt and a vest and this sort of scarf knotted loosely. I mean, if you were to take that, put it in an oil painting set in 1815 in like Regency England, he basically is dressed as a kind of disheveled Regency dandy. Mm -hmm. Like he's not wearing anything even remotely 60s. Right. You know, not remotely. I mean, Marwood's costume with that long black leather car coat and the John Lennon glasses, right? And the, and the red jumper. That's very, you could, you could buy out of work actor in the 60s, but with us a man out of time. I mean, he looks like he could be a Byronic hero from like 1820. Yeah. It uh, was giving me Oscar Wilde vibes, you know, um, that kind of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Somebody who is an artist who exudes, you know, artistry out of every pore and yeah. is just, you know, everything is a performance. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think the, um, not to harp on about the relationship dynamics, but the added complication of uh, Richard Griffith's character being this kind of stereotype of a gay sexual predator. Yeah. And, you know, there was in this uh, BFI talkback that I watched, Bruce Robinson acknowledges a lot of that stuff, says, you know, wa watching back, uh, seeing the movie now, he feels like there are obviously things that he would have done differently. There are things that, you know, uh, yeah. the portrayals of uh, gayness, uh, the way that they talk about the one black character. He's like, there's no way that I ever would have talked to anybody like that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't agree more. I, I understand. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. But uh, I think, uh, you know, I know, I'm sure you know this, that that uh, the uncle is based on his experience working with Franco Zeffirelli. Yeah. 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 And yeah. he yeah. tells yeah. 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 that story explicitly. And it's like, Whew, really bad. Um, but I, you know, without that context, it can seem uh, like it is this, you know, very uh, stereotyped. Styled out, kind of offensive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the hard thing about Monty. But the thing about Monty that, you know, 
And it does, it, it's routed in his Zeffirelli thing, which I think sort of gives it, gives it some context, but it is, I think absolutely, if you were doing it now, you wouldn't and shouldn't do those two things. I mean, the one, the one reference to presuming Ed that, I, that you're talking about, which comes from McGann, uh, which comes from Marwood rather is unfortunate, but uh, very unfortunate. And I think you couldn't and shouldn't do that. But the thing that sort of redeems Monty for me, uh, the character somewhat and, and sort of softens the, the unfortunately stereotypical portrayal, which uh, again, I do not endorse. But when he leaves a note that Wisnell reads, he says, you know, as I'm forced, you know, as my lot to leave like a thief in the night, I feel like the guy is so heartbroken and so lonely, you know, and it would have been nice to sort of see more of that and less of the predatory stuff Mm -hmm. in the movie, because I think, you know, Monty's a very lonely character, you know, Mm. Um, and it's easy just to play him for a laugh, but there's some real pathos in there, you know? Yeah. And I, and I see it having seen the movie like 50 times, uh, I see it and, um, you know, I, it's, it's complete, it's that portrayal and that character is very complicated. Um, and that's, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a valuable thing to, to make note of. Yeah. Yeah. And, and something that, you know, Bruce Robinson is very open about and he said, you know, it was semi-autobiographical. These are based on my experiences and that was a part of my experience and it was framed in that context. And actually the producers, I'm assuming outside of George Harrison, whoever was involved, who was trying to call shots, really wanted Monty to be much more exaggerated and camp. Oh, really? And were like using uh, Kenneth Williams as a reference, who's like the campest British uh, uh, actor ever. And also something that I thought was interesting that's just an aside, the person they tried to get to replace McGann when he was briefly briefly fired turned it down because he thought it was homophobic. Oh, really? So wow. there was, you know, some kind of awareness that there was, you know, uh, stuff going awareness, on. Awareness, yeah. I had no idea. I had no idea about all that. But I also think it feeds into the kind of sexual tension between the two of them that there's all of this like uh sort of gay panic that's going on you know um the the stuff that happens at the pub where they are like almost gay bashed and yeah um that kind of undergirds that tension of like what exactly are the dynamics of their relationship how do they actually feel about each other and all that is really left uh there's a lot of ambiguity there i I think that's almost constructive every i do you can kind of you can sort of look at it and decide what you want to decide about their relationship but i do think they love each other and i think i think it is a love story yeah. Um, whether or not that love has been consummated, I think is, is up in the air. Um, and that's honestly kind of maybe one of the interesting things about the movie going forward is like, you can, you can watch it and rewatch it and come to different conclusions, you know? Yeah. But that scene in the rain at the end where, you know, he says, I shall miss you with no, and I, you chin chin and, and he drinks and Marwood walks away and it's a beautiful shot. I mean, it's two lovers, you know, it's, it's saying goodbye. I mean, and that panic, I think, is also a very specifically British thing, you know, a specifically British thing from that era. So the idea that there's a tremendous amount of anxiety surrounding it um, feels very British to me, um, especially of that era. Yeah. So, you know, I think that it's such an interesting movie and, and it is at times a difficult movie. And, and, and uh, but, but just a, the characters across the board are so interesting and, and specifically Marwood and Withnell are just this the, 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 their dialogue together, the choices they make together, when they run against up against Jake the poacher, or even talking to per, uh, Park and Parkin, who's the who's the farmer, all that stuff, you know, the way and, or the Penrith Tea Rooms, you know, yes, uh, oh. <laughs> we want the finest yeah. wines yes. out of humanity, yeah. Oh. So you know, all that stuff is amazing. So it's it's such a British film in that regard, you know, and a weirdly deep bench. Like there's nobody. I mean, Danny the drug dealer, right? Ralph Brown, right. Mm-hmm. Turns in an amazing, your hair or your aerials, you know, mm-hmm. it yeah. turns in such an amazing performance there. And the dialogue to me is, 
is matchless. And the thing is, that when you read the screenplay, I have this on my desk. I have this on my desk. And I, I, it never leaves my desk because the, the stage directions are so incredible. I mean, the stage directions are so incredible. The man in the chair is Marwood, 25 years old, milk white with insomnia, glasses-like lens and a sweet face behind him, 75% good looks and the rest is anxiety. This is a long haul with an unspecified destination. Only certain things, there's still hours to go. Hours and hours have stagnated here, drifting in cigarette smoke and setting with the dust. And everything looks ill and the walls and furniture look ill. Daylight looks ill. You know, that's just ferocious. There's also a line in here that says, you know, Dostoevsky once said that perhaps hell is just a room with a chair. This room has several. I mean, that's, that's just great. And when I write stage directions, I always try to remember that first a screenplay is read. And when you read it, you want to evoke. And I think Bruce Robinson is just a brilliant writer. And he evokes, apparently this was a novel, by the way, first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, remember? And also, uh, you know, Richard E. Grant has said Bruce Robinson would not allow improvisation. It was, you know, the expectation was that everyone was word perfect. All of that is coming from the script. And again, it is a testament to the writing and to the performances that it's like this kind of glorious shambolic looseness that feels real and the way that people have conversations and does not feel like something that is like meticulously, you know, someone is really monitoring that every word is exactly correct. And yeah, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, similarly, like the movie that, that, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because that's, that's a great point. And I I heard that And the movie that also was verbatim with zero improv. And it seems like a lot of it's improv is the Big Lebowski. (laughs) Yeah. Like, all, all the natural conversations between the dude and Walter and Donnie seem just so, and so profane. You're just like, they're just throwing these F-bombs all the time. You're like, are these guys just making it up? And then, you know, I have that screenplay, which I think is a magnificent screenplay. And then you see them interviewed. You see those three guys interviewed. They're like, no, the Cohens were like, you stay, you say exactly what's on the page. You don't deviate a single syllable. Right. And it also, like, like with it all, feels this like weirdly organic kind of thing. It's just magnificent. And, you know, the other thing that always hits me is the fact that, you know, he talks about his friend Vivian uh, Matt McCarroll, mm. who was, was, was the Wisnell character and who they used to call crime because they called him crime and they're searching crime when they go out for drinks, you know, McCarroll would always like take off. And that's because crime never pays, you know, crime doesn't pay. So, and that guy died of throat cancer in his early forties. Uh, and he basically, when you see photographs of him, you're like, oh, there's Richard E. Grant. I mean, there's Wisnell. Yeah. And, you know, whatever uh, Withnell is uh, supposed to have drunk that went, that was actually vinegar, was it paint thinner or? Uh, it lighter fluid. Lighter, yeah, fluid. lighter fluid. And the real guy actually did that and went blind for three days. And Bruce Robinson yeah. thinks that that contributed. It could have been something that led to him having throat cancer, having had that experience. Just like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, crazy yeah, stuff. It's crazy. I mean, and at the same time, we're talking about these sort of like incredibly self-destructive people, you know, doing these incredibly dangerous and, and ill-advised things. And yet somehow the romance and the love and the camaraderie shines through. And I think it's a testament to the brilliance of the screenplay and the brilliance of Bruce Robinson. I quote the movie directly in, in one line in, in The Holdovers, where they're like, if you smell them, he's already, it's 11 o'clock, he's already lit, you know? And Angus says, can you blame him? It's freezing in here. It's Greenland in here. I was like, <laughs> I just wanted to put that one in as a little <laughs> check for everybody who knew it, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, and then, and then when they're in the bar, in the, in the restaurant and he's being pursued, you know, he's like, I've been called a, a prick. What a fancy little prick. You know, those two little moments were my, like, I love you, Bruce Robinson. I love you. Here's my homage to you. These two little lines, you know? Yeah. Um, because I just, I just think it's, it's just the dialogue's incomparable. The, you know, even that, even the kind of dark, smoky, low rent, lo-fi, low budget mm-hmm. interiors, you know, of Crow Crag, of the cottage, just fantastic. I used to have this fantasy, I was going to buy that cottage. <laughs> and I guess somebody has purchased it and sort of like, it's now sort of like a with nail kind of shrine. You yeah. Know? 
in, yeah. in, in, in Wales. Yeah, which is great. But that point that you just made about this film being the overlap in the Venn diagram of self-destructiveness and uh, romanticism, and that it's like both of those things existing at the same time, and almost that withnell especially feels that self-destruction is romantic and that it's a you know being a tortured artist is what you know gives him his you know the the clout the uh experience whatever to be the artist that he wants to be and in you know when uh bruce robinson was discussing the you know questions about his sexuality he said if anything i think he's autosexual but it's about him fancying himself this you know enormous maybe unearned self-belief although you know when you see him acting at the end it seems pretty good yeah he's pretty great pretty great but that scene that last soliloquy just says so much all at the same time that it's like mourning his the loss of his friendship mourning the loss of his career mourning the loss of his disgusting flat you know all of these things just going through his face and it's beautiful yeah no it's it's exquisite i mean it, and it, it rides that line in a way that nothing else ever did before or will hereafter it's a completely unique and original masterpiece i think you know it's just it's just great even with its flaws and you're right to point out those flaws those are glaring flaws uh, and flaws that you know uh, wouldn't wouldn't and shouldn't pass muster today but it's just this beautiful portrait of the, in the terms of the two of them but marwood and withnell of these two guys at a, at a, at a crossroads. And also it's, let's not forget the blazing intelligence that both these guys exhibit, you know, even in his sort of perpetually stone state, you know, he's reading the paper. He's like, you know, um, what is it? Jeff Wode, that whole Jeff Wode run, mm-hmm. you know, Jeff Wode, <laughs> he used to be angry. He used to get in bad moods, but, but, you know, cause he took you know, all these anabolic steroids, but now he's much better in, our, in his, in his regular life, in our sex life, he holds up the picture tomorrow with like, you know, Look at him. Look at Jeff Wode. You know, it's like, I don't want to look at him. You know, I mean, just those runs are just so spectacular. You know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, uh, you know, the, talking to the farmer. We're not from London. You know, all that stuff is great. The chicken. It's just it's just it's just a beautiful, poetic masterpiece. Agreed. Um, I think that is a a lovely note to finish on. Um, this has been such a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you making time for me. Thank you, man. I know you're a busy guy right now. No, no, I appreciate you having me on. I would talk about this film forever. I just and just as an aside, I don't know if you know. You probably know because you're incredibly well versed in West Ham. <laughs> um, I don't know if you know. The, you know about the Birmingham play? Yeah, yeah. That they're yeah stage production they're doing in Birmingham. I guess Robinson's writing it. He's adapting it for the stage. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, really exciting. That's incredible. But. But as we as we as we uh, exit, let me just posit this question that you know as almost like a thought experiment to you: Who could possibly play that on stage? Who is going to play that part? Right? Or both those parts? Who? Who? Right? How? How can you do it? Like you can't. How do you follow Richard E. Grant? That's like I, I don't know how you do that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we shall see. <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> uh, thank you so much again. I really, this has been wonderful. Thank you, sir. And congratulations on the nomination as well. Very well deserved. It's incredibly kind of you. I'm, I was honored to be on. And anytime you want to talk about Whistle, I'm down for it, man. Call me up. Let's do it. Love it. All right. Take care. Bye. Cheers. Wasn't that a fucking delight? Thanks again to David for chatting with me. The Holdovers is streaming on Peacock right now. And you can watch David at the Oscars on Sunday, March 10th. And that's about it this time around. Please follow me on social media at Spark Parade. Please rate the show five stars and leave me a wonderful review wherever you can. And until next time, bye. Say goodbye 
your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.